text for the sermon is Philippians 3, verse 17 to chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things." But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we've come to the end of another year. Time continues to march on. It seems as if the as if it seems that the years pass by quicker and quicker. And so at the end of the year, it's good for us to take time to reflect on our lives. God has blessed us in many ways in this past year. The Lord has blessed some of us with children. A group of our young people could profess their faith. Couples could get engaged and married and celebrate wedding anniversaries. We live in peace and freedom. And for most of us, life could go on without major disruptions. The Lord has blessed us materially. We've been able to support our families and to provide for those in need. We're blessed with homes to live in, vehicles to drive, clothes to wear, and food on our tables. The Lord has also provided for us spiritually. The gospel was preached regularly from our pulpits, comforting, encouraging, and directing us in the Lord's ways. Catechism classes could be held. We could gather in freedom in the Bible study societies. As congregation, we continue to be blessed with the service of faithful office bearers. There are many different ways in which we could support one another in the communion of saints. God is indeed good to us. We have much for which to be thankful. And yet at the same time, this past year has not been without struggles and sorrows. Our seniors are a year older again, and some have faced increasing struggles in their health. Some in our midst have faced major challenges or endured great disappointment. Others are dealing with ongoing illness or are recuperating from an accident. Some have to deal with struggles with anxiety and stress and depression. Others continue to mourn the loss of loved ones. Some face struggles in family relationships. Others see loved ones go astray. 
sin and the brokenness that comes with sin continue to affect us. And so also in this past year, we've cried tears. We've suffered pain. We've borne sorrows. We've struggled with the brokenness of this life. And so when we reflect on the passing of another year, we do so with varying emotions. Some are joyful and hopeful. Others are struggling and burdened. Not everyone experiences New Year's Eve the same way. It raises the question, how should we as Christians deal with the passage of time? The Bible provides different answers to that question. In Psalm 90, Moses teaches us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, the preacher teaches us that not all is vanity and striving after wind. His final conclusion is that we are to fear God and to keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Our text for this evening also gives us perspective on how to deal with the passage of time. I preach you the word of God under the following theme. Paul urges us to consider what kingdom we are a citizen of. Paul gives a warning against focusing on unimportant things, a call to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and an exhortation to stand firm in the Lord. Beloved, have you ever heard the saying, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery? Generally, by definition, flattery is insincere. Flattery is when we lavish compliments we don't really mean on people who don't deserve them so that they can give us what we want. But the saying that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery is true. The people we see as role models are not those whom we secretly despise but, but manipulate through false praises. The people we see as role models are those whom we sincerely admire. Often we are inclined to imitate others, to follow their example, even without being aware of it. Sometimes a person's character or their attitudes or their treatment of others are so attractive that we instinctively gravitate toward their way of doing things. Girls will imitate mom when they play house and take care of their dolls. Kids will imitate their teachers or pastor when they play school or church. In the business world, many have role models that they seek to emulate because of their success. Whether conscious of it or not, we often do the same thing in our personal lives. We're inclined to follow the example of others in how we live our lives. In our text, Paul contrasts two different lifestyles that people can imitate. Paul calls the believers in Philippi, and through them he calls us to imitate him. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. 
Paul does not issue this call because he's conceited or because he thinks he's a perfect role model. In Philippians 3.12, he admitted he's not perfect, that he needs to press on to make Christ's blessings his own. But Paul's point is that all true believers need to follow the good example of those who have focused their lives on Christ. The reason why Paul calls the Philippians to imitate him and his fellow workers is that they were in danger of following another group of people who were not walking in the faith. Paul warns about them in verses 18 and 19 of our text. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul uses four short phrases to describe this group of people. He says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Who is this group of people that Paul is writing against? They are people that Paul has some kind of emotional bond with. He cares deeply about them. He is moved to tears by the fact that they're not walking in the faith. There is also something drastically wrong with their walk of life. For they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. There's something about their way of life that can be imitated and which will lead those who follow them on a pathway that ends up in hell. While commentators make many different suggestions about who this group of people might be, there's two that deserve our attention. The first is a group of Christians who have believed the gospel, but who have strayed from walking in it. It could be that they were libertines who thought that the fact that Christ had freed them from the law meant they could live however they wanted. It's also possible that they believed in the false body-soul distinction made by many in those days. Many believed that the soul was eternal and that it mattered, but that the body was evil and destined to die anyway. Such Christians believed it didn't matter what you did with your body and through a sinful lifestyle conformed themselves to the ways of the world. Verse 19 of our text relates to this group of people. Their end is destruction unless they repent and live God-pleasing lives. They will not be saved. What were they doing wrong? Paul writes, their God is their belly. They indulge in the sinful appetites of the flesh. In the early church, there were Christians who had no difficulties attending pagan temples and participating in feasts to various gods. These feasts included drunkenness and sexual immorality. Though they professed to know Christ, to believe in his death and resurrection, they lived sinful lives. It's also possible that Paul was writing about his fellow countrymen, about the Jews. There were Jews who resisted him every step of the way. They followed Paul on his missionary journeys, trying to undermine and undo his apostolic work. 
When you read through Acts, you meet these people repeatedly. For the Jews, the cross of Christ was foolishness. They refused to hear about a Messiah who died on a cross. For them, that was the height of blasphemy. By denying the crucified Christ, they cut themselves off from the only means of salvation. Paul writes in Romans 9 verse 2 that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for his brothers, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. Verse 19 of our text could also apply to them. Because the Jews rejected Christ crucified and risen from the dead, they were walking on a pathway of destruction. Unless they believed the gospel, they could not be saved. The phrase, their God is their belly, could also apply to them. These Jews were obsessed with keeping the ceremonial law. They were focused on eating kosher foods. What went into their bellies was for them one of the biggest issues of life. The rite of circumcision was all important to them. They believe a person could not be saved unless he had been circumcised. Even Jews who had become Christians at times aligned themselves with the circumcision party, demanding that Gentile converts to the faith must be circumcised. It's hard to determine which of these specific groups Paul was writing against. Yet his message is clear. Whether you are a Christian living a sinful lifestyle or a Jew focused on keeping the ceremonial law, your destiny is destruction. Whether your God is indulging the sinful desires of the flesh or thinking you can merit salvation through keeping the ceremonial law, you are worshiping a false god. Whether you're boasting about living the party life and having a good time, or about how good you are because of your meritorious deeds, you're actually glorying in shameful things. In either case, your focus is not on Christ and Him crucified. It is on earthly things. You see, beloved, what Paul is warning us about in our text is that we should not focus our lives on unimportant things. We're all prone to do that. We're all inclined to major in the minors. Paul calls it having our minds set on earthly things. We tend to focus on the here and now, on fulfilling our own desires, on doing what we want to do. When we're young, there may be a temptation to experiment with alcohol and drugs and sex. God created us to enjoy pleasure, and so we may fall into a lifestyle that indulges the sinful flesh. Those who are no longer young still have to struggle not to set their hearts on earthly things. There is a big temptation for us to be successful, to try get ahead in life. We can focus our lives on making money, on living well. Aren't we often selfish in the use of our time, 
our energy, and our money? Don't we often indulge ourselves and give God the leftovers in the busyness of our lives? Our minds are filled with the things of this life. But how about knowing Christ and living for him? Beloved, why do we live as we live? Why do we do what we do? What is it that drives us, that motivates our lives? Is our worship driven by a heartfelt desire to give God glory for all his marvelous deeds? Is our study of the Bible motivated by a genuine desire to know the Lord more? Are our offerings, our acts of service, our Christian witness spurred on by a deep love for Christ? Or are we too busy, too distracted to focus on such things? In the first part of Philippians 3, Paul outlines his conversion and the effect that it had on his life. Formerly, Paul was always striving to live up to the demands of the law in order that he might merit salvation. But now his mindset has changed drastically. He believed that Jesus had earned forgiveness for his sins on the cross. That in Christ, he was righteous before God. Paul is so grateful he wants to show that in his life. He wants to live in thankfulness and in holiness before God. Formerly, Paul had seen himself as someone who lived a good life before God. In terms of legalistic righteousness, Paul had seen himself as blameless. Yet in his conversion, Paul recognized he was a sinful man. Now his focus is on Christ. Paul no longer looks to his own power, but to the power of Christ's resurrection to enable him to live a new life. He knows he needs to rely on Christ's Spirit to enable him to live a God-pleasing life. Paul presses toward this goal every day to take hold of Christ and the full salvation there is in him. He calls us to imitate him in this, instead of following those whose minds are set on earthly things. This brings us to our second point, and we'll see how Paul gives a call to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. In our text, Paul sets up a contrast with those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He writes, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. All people, whether they're believers or not, live on this earth. But if we're Christians, this is not our homeland. We are sojourners, we're pilgrims. We're passing through on our way home 
to join Jesus where he is in heaven, preparing a place for us. In our text, Paul makes it clear that the people whom we imitate, whose example we follow, are an indication of our true citizenship. A person's homeland stamps them in a certain way. You recognize someone from England by their British accent and someone from the deep south of the United States by their southern drawl. Whether it's a caricature or not, the English are often viewed as being introverted, Americans as being loud and brash, Japanese as being industrious. Many people carry with them the looks and the personality of their parents. Whether they want to or not, they will do certain things as their parents did them. So are we doomed to live life a specific way? Are we so programmed by our past that we cannot help but reproduce the patterns we experienced, even those that we hated? No, beloved. You see, when Paul speaks about our homeland, he's not talking about the place where we were born or where we were raised. The homeland that defines your identity does not lie in the past. In our text, Paul speaks about how our citizenship is in heaven. Our hometown legacy flows back from the future into the present. What Paul is saying is that our real identity is defined by a city we've never seen or visited. Who we are and how we are to live is influenced by a city that lies ahead as our joyful inheritance. As sojourners, as pilgrims, this earth is not our homeland. We're looking forward to something far better. We're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Christ has bought us with his precious blood. He has made us his own. He has promised to take us to himself to heaven, to share in everlasting joy and glory. Now, this example of citizenship was a particularly apt one for the believers at Philippi. Residents of ancient Philippi were familiar with the concept that one's identity could be determined by a city far distant from the place of one's birth and residence. Philippi was located in Macedonia, in Greece, far away from Rome, in Italy. Yet this study Yet this city stood out from the cities in its region because it was a colony of Rome. In 42 BC, Octavian, who would later become Caesar Augustus, defeated his rivals in a decisive battle just outside this city. He rewarded many of his loyal troops by settling them in Philippi and by making this city a Roman colony. Philippi was not governed by the Macedonian provincial authorities, but by their own Roman magistrates. They spoke Latin instead of Greek. Having been made a colony of Rome, Philippi received many privileges. Just like the cities of Italy itself, it was free from taxation. 
Its citizens had the right to due process under Roman law. The citizens of Philippi lived in Macedonia, but their citizenship was in Rome, more than a thousand kilometers away by sea. They lived in Macedonia, but their laws were Roman laws, and their culture was a Roman culture. Despite being in Greece, their loyalties were Roman loyalties. Their responsibilities were Roman responsibilities. They knew what it meant to live in a province far from Rome, but to live lives worthy of Roman citizenship. And so it was easy for them to understand Paul when he told them that their citizenship was in heaven. Although they were living on earth, their heavenly citizenship afforded them many rich blessings. Christ, their king, seated on the throne at the Father's right hand. Just as the citizens of Philippi could call on Caesar to come and help them when they were in need, so we can call on Christ to help us in times when we struggle. The citizens of Philippi could call on Caesar to defend them if attacked by enemies, and he would send his armies to defend this Roman colony. In the same way, Christ has promised to defend and preserve us in our fight against the devil, this world, and our own sinful flesh. Yet the greatest blessing of citizenship is not the benefits it offers. Citizenship provides a home, an identity. Though the citizens of Philippi lived in Greece, they were Roman, and they spoke Latin. And in the same way, beloved, though we live in this world, we are not of this world. The world does not shape our identity. At least it shouldn't. Our identity is in Christ. We are Christians. Not just because we believe that Jesus died to pay for our sins and rose to grant us new life in him but also because believing that, we live as his redeemed and renewed people. What does that mean? It means that in Christ, our sins are forgiven. We don't have to carry the burdens of shame and guilt because of our sins. When we repent, God forgives us. He wipes the slate clean. It means that in Christ, we are a new creation. We're not robots programmed to live out our lives in a predetermined way due to the family or the culture we're born in. When we're born again, we're a new creation in Christ. He lives in us by His Spirit. He renews us. He helps us show forth our thankfulness for God's grace by living God-pleasing lives. Our heavenly citizenship also helps us look to the future with hope. Paul writes, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Beloved, there's a lot about heaven that we don't know. 
but we will. And it's going to revolutionize our lives. It's going to exceed our wildest dreams and our fondest expectations. You see, beloved, in this life, we enjoy many good things. But most only last for a moment. And then they pass away again. We go back to the mundane again. We can enjoy a great holiday. But after that, it's back to work and school again. Life has its ups, but also its downs. Times of good health are often followed by sickness, by the breakdown of the body. We may enjoy riches, but we also experience tough times. There's times of peace, but also times of strife. Times of happiness, but also times of sadness. What's noteworthy about our future is that it is eternal. It will last forever. We'll experience glory without decay. Blessings that never end. Joy that lasts forevermore. What a wondrous future when we look forward to. We wonder, when will this be? When will it happen? Not until the day of Christ's return. And thus we eagerly await a Savior from heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has promised that he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Think about that, beloved. We know all about our lowly bodies. None of us has a perfect body. We don't know what it's like to have a body that never gets sick or tired, or old, or stressed out, or frustrated. In our bodies, we experience pain, sorrow, suffering, limitations, accidents, illness, and ultimately death. By, his, by the almighty power by which he's able to bring all things under his control, Christ is going to give us glorified bodies, just like his body was glorified when he arose from the dead. We'll have bodies that are no longer subject to sickness or pain or death or decay. We're going to receive bodies that are going to last forever. Renewed bodies. Liberated of all infirmities, disabilities, weaknesses, and the limitations of our earthly bodies. We're looking forward to a future when Jesus comes back to make all things marvelously, mysteriously, eternally new. Brings us to our final point, and we'll see how Paul gives us an exhortation to stand firm in the Lord. 
Paul concludes our text by writing, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is a call to endurance, beloved. Time passes, but we are to hold fast our faith in the Lord Jesus. Temptations come, but we are to resist them by the power of Christ's Spirit. We are to stand firm in the Lord. How do you do that? By considering this important question. Are we citizens of this earth or citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Do we live just for the here and the now? Or do we recognize that we are pilgrims on this earth on our way to our eternal homeland? Where, beloved, does your focus lie? On yourself and the fulfillment of your earthly desires? Or on Christ and sharing in his blessings? Do you consider this earth to be home? Are you eagerly looking forward to your eternal inheritance? If this earth is your homeland, then you're most to be pitied. For while this earth can offer a good life for a time, its pleasures are fleeting. The years fly by. Most people don't live much more than 80 or 90 years. What's that in comparison with eternity? We can be hugely successful in this life. We can attain glory and riches and honor and power. Yet Jesus' question remains. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The world is filled with its distractions, its affluence and its pleasures. It carries many along with it on a pathway of destruction. Let that be a reminder, a warning for us. Instead of walking in the ways of the world, Paul calls us to imitate him. He calls us to keep our eyes on those who walk according to the example that we have in Christ. Christ walked the pathway of suffering to glory. He was willing to deny his own will to do what his Father sent him to do. For Christ, that involves suffering much at the hands of sinful men and ultimately experiencing the agony and the shame of the cross. Likewise, we too will face hardships and sorrows as we walk through life in this fallen and broken world. And yet we're called to stand firm in the Lord, to hold fast Jesus Christ through all the ups and downs of life. We need to make it our aim to press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
to take hold of Christ and the full salvation there is in Him. Not to compromise our salvation by walking as enemies of the cross. Instead of focusing on earthly things, let's look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We may look forward with bated breath, with eager anticipation for the great day when Christ will bring us home, for the time when we'll enjoy all the blessings of our heavenly citizenship. Amen.